So we've already reached episode 10 of the Lost Words Golf Podcast. And, and when we put this podcast together, it's really important to me that we put together interviews with players and caddies to give a unique insight into the careers and lives of a touring pro from both perspectives uh, and talk through the highs and lows of the individuals. And this week, we've got a great guest on in Paul Tazori, who caddies for Webb Simpson, but is also caddy for former one of one VJ Singh, as well as Jerry Kelly and Sean O'Hare. And Paul talks about his challenges not only as a caddy, but as a player early in his career, and also the highlights and difficulties of working with Vijay Singh, who spent a lot of time in the spotlight, uh, but also in more deep detail, his relationship currently with Webb, uh, especially what they've overcome in the last 10 years together on the PGA Tour. It was a really fascinating discussion uh, from very, one of the very best caddies in the game uh, to talk about winning majors and, and the comeback that Webb's put together recently. And, and I'm really thankful for the hour that Paul gave me. So without further ado, here's Paul Tazori. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Lost Words podcast. I'm joined today by a PGA Tour veteran uh, caddy in the name of Paul Tesori. Paul, welcome. Tom, thank you for having me on. Uh, you know, been away from the game a little too long, so anytime I have an opportunity to talk golf, I am ready to do it. So let's have some fun. <laughs> that sounds good to me. So, Paul, I know obviously people know you well with your relationship with Webb uh, Simpson and as well with uh, Vijay Singh but there's also maybe a facet we hear on the broadcast sometimes about your your playing standard yourself but many probably don't know that you actually played on the PGA Tour for a little while yes I did you know it's it's a weird time of my life you know growing up um, any young player uh, their goal is to one day make it on the PGA Tour um, to eventually win on the tour and and do those things and you know I was no different um, that was my goal all along I I had a, a solid college career, not spectacular by any stretch of the imagination, but um, a solid college career. And when I got out of college, uh, I thought, you know what, I don't think I'm good enough to play. So I'm going to go work um, at a golf course, work in the shop for a while. And after about three months of that, I realized how hard every PGA professional and assistant PGA professional in this world <laughs> work in that shop. It is uh, 60 hours of uh, minimal pay. Um, and it, it was tough to be honest with you. It was kind of my first experience like, Oh, so it gave me a drive to start playing and practicing, uh, which I did. Uh, I went to Q school in 1996 for the first time and got through all three stages. And what's interesting is, is when I went to Q school, I was pretty people thought at times I could be negative I just I really do think I was a pretty big realist about my game at the time I just told her by I don't want my tour card I'm not good enough yet I I have work to do I have refinement to do uh, my mechanics aren't good enough I need to learn to play in front of crowds I was always kind of introverted and you know big crowds would would bother me so these are things and I actually think it was that mindset that got me my tour card because it was something I wasn't really striving I just wanted to play some good decent golf get my I think it was Nike tour card at the time and and then move on. And I got my tour card and in 1997, uh, was a, it was a change year for me. It was a, a year I'll always remember. I, I started playing poor golf. I had a, a problem with my left rotator cuff, ended up having surgery for my rotator cuff and labrum, um, tried to come back too early, uh, had some pain and developed. There is no other word for it, but the swing yips, Wow. Um, I could play me and you and two of your buddies could go out and play and I'd shoot 65. <laughs> and, uh, when the yellow ropes were put up and playing in front of people, I'd shoot 80. Um, and it was just, uh, something I, to be honest with you, I tried everything. I talked to everybody. I tried everything. I read everything. Um, now having gotten past them, I got past them probably only about five years ago. So they were around for about 18 years. Um, but uh, getting past them now, just being able to go back and look, I can see some of the mistakes I made coming back too early from injury. My mechanics were really poor. Um, I needed to do something about that. Um, and then also just realizing that it's not the end of the world, which at that time it felt like losing my game was the end of the world. So kind of a long story short, it's something I don't talk that much about. I feel slightly embarrassed um, more than anything else. I Bubba Watson, his favorite thing <laughs> to do in the world. Um, you know, when, when Weber and I win a golf tournament, it's pretty much the same text every time. Weber, way to go. Proud of you. Good job. Polly, you're still 0 for 17. <laughs> <laughs> and what he's uh, referring to is I played in 17 tour events and made zero cuts. So he likes to uh, belly it in there, and I enjoy it now. I, I try to laugh it off. Um, you know, For a while, I just carried it with me as a horrible time in my life. But to look back and know, hey, I did make it. And without that, I would not be doing what I do now, which is I think I've got the greatest job in the world. I just love what I do. 
Um, and you know, without that, I, I wouldn't be here today. So yeah, there, really... there is a blessing behind the failure. Yeah, that's the thing, there, isn't it? It opens an opportunity. And, and like you say there, I mean, I think you've probably been quite modest by saying it was solid but unspectacular at college because you did win a national championship, if I'm correct. And, uh... Yes, yes. I, I was I was able to win two, one in junior college, one in regular college at University of Florida in 1993. Um, you know, I, it, it, we still have to keep it on the slightly unspectacular. I did not win in college. Um I, I had an embarrassing, I had eight runner ups and I think 10 thirds. So there was a little problem closing the deal. I didn't win my first tournament post high school until my first professional tournament. I won, um, and did quite well winning a bunch of tournaments on the mini tours and stuff like that, but I could not win in college. I don't know what it was to it. If one day I'd shoot 67 to finish second and then the next time I'd have a one shot lead and shoot 75 and, you know, finish eighth or something. It was just a, one of those things and kind of as my senior year went, it was getting a little harder, you know, to kind of bust through that bubble and so many good players in college. And I wasn't able uh, to quite ever get it done, but um, was a three time All-American. So, again, yeah, a solid player. But, you know, playing on a team with Chris Couch, who won on the PGA Tour, Brian Gay, multiple time winner on the PGA Tour. Um, I think we had six guys, actually seven play either the Corn Ferry Tour or PGA Tour from my team of five which will tell you how deep the team was. And uh, those are some of my favorite days. I, I love the qualifying process as much as the tournaments. They were tournaments in and of themselves and uh, just some, some good memories and good times. And a lot of those guys I still keep in close contact with. Oh, yeah, and I was going to ask you there, was how difficult was it that you've mentioned Chris Couch and Brian Gay there? How difficult was it to see them go on and, and, and make a success on the tour and, and win, knowing that see, for a good period of time in your life you were competing with them, playing with them yeah. and to their standard? And and you, you talked there about being uncomfortable going out on tour too early. Um, yeah. Do you think maybe if, you, if you'd missed your card that year that you know maybe it panned out differently or do you not try not to think too much about that? Well, it's always so hard to tell um, going back. I know the first part of your question about like those guys, again, the people that they just thought I didn't have enough confidence in myself. Maybe that was true. Again, I just think I was a realist. Uh, Chris and Brian were always better than me. I, they were, I think I played number one on the team my whole senior year, but they were better than I. It, there was a line my coach at Florida always had, and I hated it when I was in college, but I understood it more later. And he said, it's better to be a good player than be playing good. And I didn't really understand that at the time, but you can just tell when certain people have talent levels that are above. And Chris and Brian, they were just always different. Um, you know, these are guys that they might play poorly two weeks in a row, but win the next event by six. Um, and when you see that kind of potential, you realize. So it never – the only thing I think that surprised me a little was that Chris didn't have a longer career, and he had some pretty severe – body injuries as well and that brian with the length that he hits the golf ball is still he i feel like he's the same player now as he was when i saw him when he was 19 years old at florida um and here he is now um on the pga store on, on the pga tour still competing still keeping his card and you know only flying the ball you know high 260s to low 270s in the air um and it's amazing to know now that boy can flat out chip and putt so that part doesn't surprise me um at all and I think the next part is, is that if I didn't get my card when I did, I think that there would have been some uncertainty coming up. I would have gotten healthy, you know, which would have been nice. But I don't think I'd have learned the lessons that I learned unless I had failure. And I think the failure came about with the injury, but also just being on the biggest stage and not feeling ready. Um, so I, I think, to be honest with you, I probably would have still – I would have gotten on the Corn Ferry uh, tour eventually. I think the Nike back then, and I do think it would have helped. But I just flat out say I wasn't good enough. Um, I was almost good enough. Um, you know, our term in baseball we have over here, I was a Triple A player, and that was kind of me. I just I got everything I could out of my game, um, and I just I didn't have more to give. Where you see, especially now, oh my goodness, we, we'll get into that later. But <laughs> the talent that's coming out now is just tenfold of what uh was back in 1996 and 97 when i was on tour yeah and then you say you went and take an assistance job at, at a golf club if i'm correct and you were working there when when vj singh approached you to, to work with him yeah so i played in practice at tpc when i was on tour uh every day and so i got to know you know david duvall um vj very well uh some of the other guys jim Furyk, blaine McCallister, those guys but me and vj kind of struck up a friendship he was always very kind to me always tried to help me and so when I quit playing and I was teaching full time um, at a club just up in North Jacksonville here, 
Um, you know, we stayed in touch. I'd go out and see him every now and then. We'd hit some balls together. But one day the phone rang and he said, hey, uh, um, I got two weeks free. Would you like to come out and caddy for me one week? And I was teaching full time, maybe making $20,000 a year. That was it. This would have been back in 2000. I loved what I was doing, but obviously you couldn't do that for a sustainable future unless you started, you know, really up in your clientele. And I was like, yeah, of course I want to come. And that week he, it was the same year he had won the masters, but he was really struggling with his game. He had missed, I think six cuts that year. And, um, I saw something in his golf swing. We talked about it. We worked on it. He played well the first week. He hired me the next week as his coach, as his teacher. And that was at Valhalla for Jack's last PGA and VJ's paired with Tiger Woods in 2000, obviously trying to do something no one had ever done, trying to win the third straight. Uh, was that three in a row? Yeah. Trying to win three in a row. Um, yeah. and, uh, and Jack Nicklaus playing his last PGA. And so the fans were, I've never, even to this day, it, the only thing I've seen that compares to it is a Ryder cup. Uh, there was 15 people deep on every single hole and it was just a big eye-opening experience for me. And VJ missed the cut. Uh, remember, Jack almost held that wedge on the last hole uh, to make the cut on the number. And then Tiger went on to beat Bob May in the playoffs. So, you know, it was a big one for me. And at the end of the week, we sat down, and, and VJ offered me the job. And very quickly, things started to change uh, for me. And that's back in 2000. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. He, he took you on as a coach before. And I think this is another sort of facet to your role as a caddy is that you do tend to work very closely with the players, not just as a caddy. And I think there's a lot of caddies that do do this, but actually work with them on the range and, and find things in their swing to help them out. Yeah. I think that, you know, one of, one of the things in my opinion to be an elite caddy, um, I really think you can teach anybody to do win and clubs and, you know, stuff like that. But I think the two things that separate, Elite caddies, number one is being a good player. Uh, there's just things you know as a good player that you can't possibly know if, you know, you're a double-digit handicap. Uh, you know, there's must be, what, five different types of flyers that are going to come out different types of rough. You know, you might have the high-goer or the high-nose, you know, nose-diver or the, the kind of fluff and runner, and, and you got all these or the tight lies into the green around the greens or, you know, just understanding ball flights. You know, if, if we hit it this flight, it's going to go this distance and – the second part for me is just an understanding of your man's golf swing. You don't have to be uh, a Sean Foley, a Pete Cowan, a David Ledbetter, um, or any of these guys. You just need to have a full understanding of what your guy does well. And I've tried to tell some of the young guys to do this, and more and more guys are doing this. Pay attention on the range. Like, Watch what he's doing. Make sure that bad habits aren't forming because we'll see way more swings. And um, each of my guys, I've been in that role model, probably less with Jerry than with – I was very active with uh, VJ, with Sean, and, and with Webb as well. And, and I think it's huge because we can make adjustments on the course, and I bet that's happened a 100 times just in my 10 years with Weber where he's been struggling. He turns into over, can't find it, and we have a rule. I don't go to him. He comes to me. Um, and so he'll say, Hey, do you see anything? I'll be like, yes. You know, <laughs> your, 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 your turns a little short, not being patient up top or Hey, you're swaying off the ball. He'll put it into his pre-shot routine and, you know, come back, shoot 33 on the back and maybe only shoot one under that no one sees, but it might be one of those spectacular one unders by the time the week's over. We did it this year in Memphis playing with Jim Furyk the first day. Weber was four over par. I think the wind was blowing one mile an hour, and the greens were perfect. I think we were in last place. And um, on the back nine, he asked. I told him. Um, we managed to play three under on the last eight holes uh, to get it back to one over and finish second in the event by two, I think, to Brooks Kepka. And Jim saw us the next week, and he goes, hey, bud, he goes, that's what makes you elite. And people don't understand that the difference between being good and elite is that. You just you waited, you waited, you found something, and then you almost won the golf tournament. And so I think that there's those little things that uh, really elite caddies can do and can do well. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you say that because I think a lot of the times now there is focus on the caddies as as mentors and and they say the right things and and a lot of people see that as a as an attitude and a and a pumping them up or bringing them in at the right time. But like you say there, there's actually more to it in terms of you actually have a technical point of view because they can't have their coaches out on, you know, their full-time coaches out Correct. on the course. And, you know, so they need a guy like yourself that can actually say what they need to say in those moments. So that's really interesting that you say there. And going back to VJ is that everyone kind of sees him as kind of a, maybe a bit stubborn and, and difficult to work with, but it's, it's clear that he took on board what you said to him. <laughs> well, yes, he is stubborn. 
Uh, yes, he is difficult to work with. Um, he is still a dear friend. He wouldn't mind me saying that. Um, yes, he, uh, he, he was those things, you know, Vige had an upbringing. I don't know why there hadn't been a movie made about him. I don't think enough <laughs> is given to where he came from. Um, you know, he grew up, um, in a household with an alcoholic father. Um, he grew up with a brother who was better than him at golf. Uh, he, uh, you know, when he, when he did turn pro and he was on the Asian tour, you know, that, the cheating scandal. He got banned for 10 years for cheating, uh, for supposedly erasing a score and, and putting a lower one in. Um, when he got his European tour card, he would open up the locker and hundreds of erasers would fall out every week. Wow, um, yeah. They would refill them every week. And that guy's in St. Augustine. That guy's at the world in the World Golf Hall of Fame. Um, a three-time major winner, uh, what, 33 or 34-time winner on the PGA Tour, won over, I think, 60 events worldwide. And like to go from where he was to that, I think it's why we saw the VJ that we saw most of his career, which was a, a little bit of an abrupt uh, personality. Because I think he had to develop that in order to get past the things that the world was kind of putting against him. Uh, and I got to see the good side. I also got to see the bad side. Uh, we had our we had quite a few you know dark moments, but I also got to see the softer side. So. I feel myself fortunate to have kind of gone through that. And now VJ's come out the other side. It's, you know, very similar to what the world is seeing with Tiger. You know, when we competed against him week in, week out, back when VJ was number one, then Tiger was one. And, and, and during that stretch, it was a situation where, um, you know, Tiger was not very friendly. He didn't talk very much. He played mind games. He would stand in different spots, uh, do this now now not as much against vj but then eventually when i worked for o'hare um i remember time at bay hill we had a five shot lead going into sunday and and they used to play practice rounds together and everything but you know he he was doing his things standing in the wrong spots and um doing those mind tricks but now we see tiger come out the other side we see the tiger that obviously went through some pretty pretty dark years some pretty harsh years and i think we all learned humility uh through those difficult times but also we see tiger as a dad and, you know, children change your personalities. They kind of take the emphasis off of us, we, me, and they move it to them. And I think that's what we're seeing. It's been beautiful to watch. Uh, being able to be a caddy under, you know, Captain Woods this year at the President's Cup was an honor. And then, um, you know, me having gone toe-to-toe with him so often, me obviously carrying the bag, but uh, to see this personality. And DJ's very much the same. He hasn't been playing as well, so – Public's not getting to see this different personality, but he is definitely softened, and uh, that big old smile of his is coming out, and that goofy laugh, which I love to hear. <laughs> and that's the thing, <laughs> you know, it is, like they say with, with VJ, there's almost a guard up, and it's a trust issue because someone's trying to almost force you into saying the wrong things and, and make you look bad. And and yes. that happened with Tiger. You know, Tiger was on a, probably even another level from VJ in the sense that he couldn't even, you know, walk one way without people mentioning something. So he you know these guys there's so much scrutiny on them and you know even you know Webb and, and people like that you know they're top 10 players in the world but these guys were just really like under a spotlight and, so true and so true uh, i got a funny story or, or i'm sorry to interrupt you tom oh. but i know you'll love the story um so this was two years ago we were still playing in akron ohio for the wgc and Webb was in having Starbucks after the round. It's one of his favorite things to do. He goes and he reads his Bible and he just relaxes and he re- responds to emails. And it's his like little hour to hour and a half of like quiet time just to kind of reboot the batteries um, at the end of the day. And he was in there having a Starbucks. And all of a sudden he goes, that must be, he hears a voice say, that must be nice. And he looks up and it's Tiger in <laughs> Starbucks. And Webb just laughing. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, you know that it's been 30-something years since I've done what you're doing right now. He goes, I just can't do it. Um, it's just like me even coming in here um, is, is a risk. And so they laugh. Tiger walks away, and Webb just puts his book down. He just starts looking, and you see people gathering at the window. You see people behind the counter. You see everybody has stopped everything they are doing just to look at him. And, you know, Webb said he's like, Paul, no matter how much we all want it, we all want the fame. We all want everything else. Like it, it's just not 
worth it. Nothing, none of that is worth it. And, you know, for Tiger to say that must be nice and just say, you know, I, I wish I could do what you did. And he said something to him a few other times since then, but it goes right back to what you're saying. They're under a completely different spotlight. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I think we see both sides. Of I think Tiger really doesn't enjoy to a certain extent fame because I think he's really proud of what he's achieved and, and how good he was. And he always loves winning and he loves the focus being back on him. But it, it must be sad that you can't even sit and have a cup of coffee without people, you know, really just, you know, getting into your life and, and your children and your family can't even have a life without being, you know, focused That's exactly. on. And, and, you know, like yourself and Webb, you, you've both got young children and if you can't let them grow up without people interfering, that must be really hard to deal with. I agree. I agree completely. And and going back to VJ in the sense that, you know, you had people always talk about his work ethic and, and how hard he works and, and that's not none of it's exaggerated is it he did work from dusk till dawn i think <laughs> on his game and you know it, i think uh, if anything it was under it was understated <laughs> if anything um this man was the hardest worker i have ever seen uh there's one guy since that i feel like probably worked as hard as Vige, and that would be podrick harrington yeah. um you know he's very very similar but you know the thing people don't understand about VJ was that he would work harder at home than on the road. Um, you know, when we came home, uh, VJ back then played probably 30, 30 events a year. And so we would have 22 weeks at home. And those were the really long days. Those were the hard days. Um, and I, I joke, but in 2001, I had 11 days off. And in 2002, I had 12 days off. Um, so only 23 days off out of what, 730? My addition there, good. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And, and he only took one day off. And it was Christmas, and it's not because it was Christmas. That didn't have anything to do with it. It was because uh, it was pouring rain all day, and he couldn't get out there. <laughs> he said he didn't even pick a club up, which to this day I think is hogwash. I think he definitely <laughs> was in there with that big 10-pound heavy club of his doing marrow work. But, um, you know, he was just – I try to explain it to people. Golf was his profession. Golf was his passion. Golf was his hobby. Golf was his idol. It was everything for him. And so he put everything he had into it. And, you know, he had a he was very blessed to have a body that could withstand the punishment that he put into it. Um, they'd also don't understand that starting in 2001, he worked out twice a day, every day. So two a days every day. I'll say, well, every day, I'd say two a days, probably 300 days out of the year. And then just one a day, probably the other 65 um, and he was just relentless. Um, you know, he took Tai Chi to learn breathing treatments. Uh, he read books. He just did everything he could to become the best player he could. And I think he, I really believe in my heart he, he did that. Now, he looks back and wishes he could have had some of those younger years back. He only had nine wins at 40 years old and, you know, won 24 times, I think, after 40. And so he wishes he could have kind of known what he had figured out. Um, we made a couple changes in his golf swing. One of the biggest was he used to have a, a really shut club face at the top of his swing. And it took him about a year to get that fully fixed. And then under the gun, he didn't hit it left anymore. And once that happened is when he kind of took off and won 17 times in three years here on our tour and um, a few more times overseas. So it was uh, it was wonderful to see that happen again. Um, there were some difficult times in there, but I always knew it wasn't personal. It felt personal at times, but I knew it wasn't. And I think that's the thing, you know, with you use the word trust. I think that's the best word to describe is that if he trusted you, you would be in and you would see what you what I wish everybody could see. Um, and I think that's the same thing with Tiger now um, as he's gotten older and, and definitely with VJ as uh, if he trusts you then you will see the real side. And uh, I'm fortunate to say I got to see the real side um, quite often. Yeah, that's really nice to hear. And I think going on to, to Tiger there that, you know, people now, like they say, he comes and does an interview and he's smiling and he's going a little bit more into his personal life and, you know, the big yeah. embrace that he had at the Masters with his son and, and things oh. like that. And, and these are things that actually are, very normal and just taken for granted by us you know every time a player wins on tour they're, they're they're embraced by you know their wife or their friends or you know partners and and no one thinks anything of it but because tiger's done it and, it, and shows are all emotional on the tv people seem to think that he's a really changed man but well, actually he's just letting his guard down just that little bit that he wished he probably could have done 20 years ago yeah yeah i think it's a little bit of both again you know here's a guy that i guarantee you he never thought that he was going to go through four years of golf like he went through um and obviously life i think 
you know, had a way of humbling him. Golf then humbled him, and then seeing the kids grow up. And, you know, you see these scenes now. Uh, remember TPC, uh, what was it, two years ago? With him and Kevin Nile on the 17th hole yeah. with, you know, Kevin. I mean, you don't see that ever. And then I've rewatched, you know, we wanted to win the Masters. We lost by two that year. We had a chance on the back nine. But uh, it was also special to be there for Tiger winning his is that fifth, fifth jacket. And you watch his face from the time he walked off that green. He couldn't stop. He couldn't stop smiling. You could tell yeah. he almost wanted to stop smiling, and he couldn't. It was as if. You know, he had been given this new lease on life, and here we were watching it uh, right in front of us. And I just think, you know, for me, that scene walking from that putting green all the way to the first tent is something that should be replayed over and over and over again. And it's incredibly special and unique. And I'm glad that we were all uh, here to experience it, to watch it. I'm also glad we all got to see kind of both sides of him, uh, you know, kind of the, the harsher, more um you know michael i almost call it michael jordan-esque you know michael's uh as he got older kind of mellowed a little bit as well you know his his earlier teammates will tell you that he was harsh um uh with every step of the way and then as he got older he got you know just gentler and a little softer and i think we've seen that with tiger as well and as a captain i mean it's just incredible uh for the president's cup yeah it's interesting you made a point earlier of how many times you've actually gone sort of head to head with tiger as a caddy in the sense that you've been there with sean o'hare a couple of times you obviously with vj a lot of the jewels and you know you're saying the relationship you have with him now and how you get on but you know going back to 2000 at the president's cup and there was a little joke <laughs> in there wasn't there with <laughs> with, a, with a comment yes. on the back of your cap which uh yes him at the yes. Time. yes let's let's tell i have a long version a short version we're gonna go with medium version um <laughs> just uh for sake of time but yeah, so it was only my third event caddying on the PGA Tour, so let's start that. Uh, very naive. Um, we're going to start with that precursor. Um, we're at the President's Cup. First four matches of the President's Cup, VJ uh, plays against Tiger and Nota Begay. Um, the Americans have won three of those four matches. Uh, they beat VJ and Ernie twice and beat VJ and Retief once, and we beat them once with those two. But Tiger had played really, really poorly. In each match. Uh, at that time, people forget that Nota Begay had won four times, I think, in a 13-month stretch and was a top 10 player in the world and was just relentless and in playing incredible golf. So the Americans only needed, I think, a point and a half to close out the matches. And so it was kind of, you know, whatever. And you know who they obviously pair together in singles are going to be VJ, who won the Masters that year, and Tiger, who won the next three majors. You know, VJ was the one that prevented the Grand Slam, the calendar Grand Slam. So. Yeah. They pair them together, and we show up, and the ball guys had these 12 hats beautifully stitched out that said Tiger Who on the back. And I said, what is this? And they were like, oh, we're having fun. Tiger hasn't signed our flag yet, and so we're just making fun of him about it. I thought it was hilarious. Put it on. I was like, VJ, what do you think? VJ laughed. <laughs> so we get out to the golf course, and we're one up through three. In the fourth hole um, there in Virginia at Robert Trent Jones, it's a par three, and Tiger hit it left in the water, chipped it to 15 feet. Uh, about 10 to 12 feet thirty. VJ said, Tiger, that's good. Pick it up. That's for bogey. We've got 12 feet or whatever. And we assumed Tiger was going to say, yeah, yours is good, too. He didn't say anything. So VJ putted it. He putted it down to the lip. And when I mean to the lip, half the ball's over the lip, half the ball's outside the lip. And we don't hear anything. And we look over on the side, and Tiger's standing on the side of the green with his arms crossed and a scowl on his face. <laughs> and VJ said, I think he saw your hat. And I said, and I said, I, I don't think he likes it. So we kind of joked about it. We He made us putt it from, again, uh, less than a millimeter, or the shortest distance that's ever <laughs> been not given in match play history. So we walk over to 15, par 5, and I'll never forget the swing Tiger put on it. Now, again, he played poorly all week. He probably turned an extra 15 degrees. This ball came out mid-height with about a one-yard draw, and he played the last 13 holes 7-under to beat us 2-1. and one. And, of course, when I walked off the – I realized what had happened. I still didn't quite understand, like, the grandeur of what the hat had done. I was naive. I thought it was funny. Uh, I thought it was kind of a joke. Uh, you know, the competition was a blowout. But I realized very quickly it was a lot more than that. And it did create some division that was already there with VJ and Tiger. It did. I, I apologize to Tiger. Um, he was great about it. He said, nah, I didn't take it disrespectfully. It just made me want to kick y'all's, you know what, um, <laughs> when I was out there and 
it, it was something that kind of just stayed there for a while. And I wanted to tell the story so badly, um, but you know, no one really wanted to listen at the time. Tiger was held in high regard. VJ wasn't, and VJ didn't really want me. He didn't care. Like I wanted to just say, guys, this was a joke. It was meant to be funny, blah blah blah. But he kind of said, no, 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 just let it lie. Well, it had been 11 years since VJ or since Tiger and I had talked about it or had done anything. I was working for. Uh, Weber and I had been out again with Tiger probably over a hundred more times since then and probably at least 10 practice rounds and we had never really talked about it so he's walking by the putting green I don't know if it was Doral I get it confused Webb loves the story and I was like Weber I was like I still feel like there's this small tension with me and Tiger I was like here watch this and he's walking up I go what's up Tiger who he goes what's up two and one and he just <laughs> kept walking and he stopped about 20 yards away, turned around, and that big grin that you, you and I know of so well, it came out, and then he just kept walking. And think about that for a second. Now, we haven't talked about it in 11 years. He was walking by. I say, what's up, Tiger Who? He did not waste a split second. He said, <laughs> what's up, two and one? So for some reason, I think in his own mind, my name was not Paul Tesori. I think my name had become two and one because he had it on the tip of his tongue and was ready to tell the story. And so now every year at these team events to retell the story, he loves the story. He thinks it's great. Um, and so I retell it. And this year with him being captain, him and John Wood got together and on picture day, they had all the caddies and Webb and Captain Woods wore hats that said two and one uh, <laughs> Paul who uh, on the back. So that's what they all said. So it was really good banter. It was kind of fun this year to be a part of the practical joke. Uh, they probably thought that I was I didn't like it. I loved it. Um, it was great. So. I think that's uh, one of the uh, probably three memorable moments where I think the Tigers really Sort of, I mean, he's obviously got a drive there, but I think there was another time the interview with Curtis Strange where he told him he would learn, um, yeah. and, and he kind of stuck it to him then. Um, yeah, also, in the, in the match play with Stephen Ames. Names, yeah, with the 9 and 8, and I think that, well, they're the sort of things that turn him to a different player. And so I have another story um, that a lot of people have never heard. Um, I don't even know if I'm technically maybe supposed to tell the story, but I'm going to tell it anyway, <laughs> so here we go, Tom. You got me. So um, the Walker Cup where Tiger's team got beat by the Europeans, where Gordon Sherry was on that team. Tom, you probably – do you remember those days? Uh, no, not quite. No, it was Okay, yeah, you're still time, a little but, too yeah. young. Yeah, so – but Gordon Sherry was the next Nicholas. He was incredible. He was winning everything. And, the you know, the Europeans beat the Americans to win the Walker Cup. And at the end of it, Gordon Sherry gives this entire speech about how he's turning pro about how he's thankful and all this. And, you know, Tiger who had lost, uh, he feels, you know, like he let the team down and everything else. Well, that was 1996. Well, 1997 Tiger wins the masters and run away. Well, 12, is that right? One, one by 12, um, 18 under breaks the all time scoring record. And after the award ceremony, whatever the coach of that Walker cup team was buddy Marucci and buddy was at Augusta and buddy was standing under that big tree that we all know right in front of the clubhouse. He's standing there and Tiger's walking by and Buddy didn't really, um, you know, want to bother him, but he also wanted to say good job. So Tiger's walking by and Buddy said, hey, Tiger, great job, Buddy. I'm proud of you. And Tiger turned around. He goes, he goes, thanks, Buddy. He goes, by the way, I wonder where Gordon Sherry is now. <laughs> and like it, there's just that little story like he, he's not meaning any disrespect towards Gordon Sherry. What he means in that is like he took those things and he made them drive him more. Yeah. And more and more, you know, when when Stephen Ames said he's very beatable, he's driving the ball all over, all over the place. He was just telling the truth at the time. He seemed very beatable and he was driving the ball all over the place. Yeah, he wasn't trying to disrespect Tiger, but Tiger took that, used it and beating nine and eight um, shot eight under on the front uh, on him. And then, you know, with the Tiger who thing on the back of my hat, he even said later on when I apologize, I didn't take it as disrespect, but it did make me want to kick you all's you know what? And so I think at the same time, it's that same thing where I didn't mean any disrespect. VJ did not mean disrespect. We did it as a joke, but he used it as bulletin board material. And if you go through all the best athletes of all time, they've all done it. Every one of them. If you can give them just a little bit of bulletin board material, it just seems to the elite players like they're able to kind of summon something different up. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, really. And I think, you know, you've had a, a career now of working with, with elite players and, uh, you know, certainly with Jerry Kelly and Sean O'Hare. I think they probably sometimes, they were really good players at the time you are on their bag and possibly both maybe should have won more in their career. 
Um, what's your thoughts on that? So I think Jerry was a guy that kind of maxed out his potential. Um, okay. You know, Jerry, he's a shorter player, you know, shorter in stature. I think Jerry has maximized his ability through his heart, through his tenacity, through his grit. Um, and I think he has had, you know, he had a heck of a career on our tour and now is just playing incredible on the champions tour. Now, Sean, oh, yes. Um, you know, Sean, when I went to work for Sean, um, I had never really seen so much talent, including VJ, um, that I had worked for. I was just, I was blown away with what he could do. And, you know, I definitely think Sean was a guy that I believed would win double digit uh, events on the PGA tour, but you know, he had that one Achilles heel and he just was never uh, a great putter. He ended up becoming a better putter later in his career when his ball striking wasn't as good, but um, he just was an inconsistent putter. And we won a few times played on the president's cup team and in San Francisco, me and Jerry, uh, you know, won and played on that uh, president's cup team over the tie in uh, South Africa and so, you know, they played good golf, but I think two different careers. I think Jerry can look back and go, yeah, I did all I could. I think Shano, you know, will look back and think, man, you know, I could have done a lot. And it's just one of those unfortunate things that happen. We don't really know why. Sometimes we see some of these most talented players come out and don't make it. And then you see other guys that you didn't think could come out and be multiple-time winners on our tour, um, which kind of leads – I'll kind of lead into the next one. leads me into Webb. Uh, I was fired for the first time in my life in 2010 – from O'Hare in October of 10 and we were top 25 in the world. We were playing okay, but we had missed Atlanta that year. Um, and he just wanted to try to change things up. Um, he ended up being very kind to me later on and just saying it was a mistake. He jumped the gun and kind of thought he was doing better than he was, but it ended up being a big blessing for me. It was not at the time. Um, it was a rough time. We had gone through that big crash over here in, in the States with real estate and the market and, things were a little bit tight. And so in December of 2010, um, I had two offers from two guys that were top 15 in the world. And I didn't think either one of them were going to be great fits for my personality. And yeah. faith was important to me. And I really wanted my next job to last a long time. And out of the middle of nowhere, about an hour before I was going to uh, take the job with one of these two players, the phone rang, it's web. Um, my wife is on the computer real quick looking up his stats. He had just kept his card the year before. He was 213th in the world. and But I knew our faith was the same. I knew personalities. We would get along. And five minutes into the phone call, which he says I interviewed him on, which is a it's a funny one to look back on now. He goes, Paul, you interviewed me. I, I barely asked you any <laughs> questions. And, I, you know, I took the job five minutes later. I remember hanging up the phone like, what have I just done? Um, he just kept his card 213 and well, and the first time I watched him practice, I was like, Oh my gosh, we have a long way to go. Um, but what you can't see is self-belief. What you can't see is that feeling that while golf is your profession, it's not the end of your, uh, end of your world. Uh, what you can't see is probably the best hands in golf, which Webb has and a completely, what I think is a perfect work ethic. He doesn't overwork. He doesn't underwork. He works how hard he needs to work and, and gets in the gym. And my goals that year that I set ended up way underwhelming. I think I had $2 million, seven top tens, uh, and he ended up making $9.3 million that year and had 14 top tens and two wins and uh, almost won the player of the year, finished second player of the year and second in the uh, FedEx Cup and just a, a magical year. And it, it taught me a lot at that time about just not putting limits on things. Yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting you say there is that you really weren't convinced that he was, uh, you know, as, as talented as, as he really is, and you thought you'd maybe made a mistake when when you I did, did do it. But you know, I did. The, the personality's fit, and and it's a really important factor there. I think I think back to uh, I suppose Ted Scott recently, and and his fit with Bubba, and I think you both sort of made this a similar sort of decision there, and and then he goes out and wins twice and and three runner-ups in that one year. So you quickly learn how good he was. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's amazing how I'd always thought of myself. I could really, you know, kind of spot talent and all that. But, you know, I had just left a guy that I thought was the most talented. And I went to work for a guy that at the time I was like, man, he doesn't have the same talent level. But you see, and, you know, talent is all it's that's it's it's subjectable. That's not the right word. What am I trying to say? It's you can't quantify what talent is. That's in the eye of the beholder. Um, you know, in over here in baseball, when you have a, uh, a talent scout go out, there are guys that have slipped through the cracks because one talent scout didn't think he was talented enough. And, you know, it's something that Webb is reminded of all the time because he'll get that kind of question 
in the media a lot because Webb obviously plays a different game than the new modern guy does. He's not a, a basher. He doesn't hit the ball that far. He has to play a different game. And so he'll kind of get that, you know, Weber, you know, with you being behind the guys, sometimes, you know, the talent level, you know, so far. And Webb just is reminded all the time. He's like, no, no, no talent, that's in their own eye. Yeah. He goes, I feel like I'm more talented than they are, um, with the exception of hitting the ball a long way. So um, it's it's a good way to look at it. And I got a little lesson there. That was that was something for me. And I also don't set those kind of goals anymore either. My goal now is just I just want us to be a little better than we were the year before. And if we make the tour championship and we make the team event that year, then we know we've had a good year. And you can't control wins, unfortunately. Uh, we had four seconds in a 10-tournament stretch. Uh, and we had six out of 14 that we either finished second or lost by one. And did not win any of them. And our scoring average on Sunday was 67.8. So he couldn't have done a whole lot more uh, uh, during that stretch. Rory shot 61 on us in Canada. And then JT Poston shot 61 on us. And Greensboro to beat us by one. And Brooks shot 64 on us to beat us by two. And, um, you know, we lost the RSM Classic in a playoff over here where Tyler Duncan birdied 17 and 18 and the playoff hole on 18 to beat us. And those are things you can't control sometimes. So you just try to say, hey, if I'm getting better, and I'm on that team event. I'm at the tour championship, man. Not not a whole lot can go wrong from there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting you talk about those seconds there because it was gonna. I was gonna actually ask you the same question: is that the Webb's playoff record is two and five? I mean, he, you know, he has lost five playoffs, so you could really be looking at eleven wins all of a sudden. But Crazy. it's not because. I don't think he ever really seems to lose events too much. I think there's probably been an occasion where he probably would look back and say he should have won that one. But yeah. say there that there's been Sundays where it's just completely out of your control. You can't control a Tyler Duncan birding three holes in a row. Yes. Like uh, Tony Finau couldn't control what you guys did in Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's the same that, thing. Yeah, isn't we flipped the script. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're you're so right. What you said. Yeah, he couldn't control us doing that to him and. Those are things in golf. I I, don't, I hate to say, just say golf. It's just in sport that, but golf you cannot play defense. You you can't. It's only offense. Um, you you can't do anything to the other player to make them play better or worse. And so sometimes you just flat out get beat. Uh, I, I remember another Tiger story at the Boston one year. We had a two shot lead. I was one for VJ um, going into as a Monday finish there. But Tiger talks about it in his book, or Hank talks about it in his book that tiger had called Hank and said, I can't beat him with what I have. You know, can you give me something? And we go out the next day, we have a two shot lead. We're two under through seven and we're three back. Um, you know, and you just can't, you can't see those kind of things that are going to happen. No, we were two back. He was six under through seven and had missed two putts inside of five feet, which he doesn't do, <laughs> um, very often. But nice. you know, those are things you can't control and you just try to put your head down and go forward and, you know, to get the win at Phoenix, it, it was a big deal for us. It really did. It looked like another one. We had, you know, the week before our last start before that was at Sony where we lost by one. Um, we had about a 13 foot on the last hole. Some rains came and our chip shot skidded and left it about a, a, a ball short right in the middle of the hole. The greens had changed a little bit. And so another tough one right in a row. And, you know, to get that done at Phoenix and we've only played one tournament since then. So it's incredible. That was back in February. Yeah, absolutely. And just going back to uh, way back, really, in 2012, um, obviously Webb wins at Olympic to win the US Open. Um, fairly early in his career, really, when you when you think about it in terms of where he is now. Um, and he'd started off the year pretty well. Um, you know, had some top 10s after a really good year in 2011. But he was going into the week off the back of two miscuts at, at TPC in the Memorial. Yes. What was, the, what was the thinking going into the week? Was there a, was there a confidence level? Was he down on himself? Or? Uh, uh, let, let's use the term searching. Uh, <laughs> we were definitely searching. Um, we got out there on Monday uh, to the Olympic Club. We'd come off two missed cuts. Uh, missed the cut by one at TPC and by about seven or eight, I think, at Memorial. And, you know, very clear. It was our first kind of battle with adversity together we've been together about a year and a half and this was the first time we had gone through any kind of a, a stretch more than one week of poor golf and um we got out there on monday and you know webb was different um he seemed agitated irritable angry and those are things you don't use to describe webb he just is one of these naturally just he's been given this blessing of being a joyful person and just things didn't seem right. And Monday was a harsh day. He just, he wasn't himself. I felt like he was mad at me and seemed like other things. So Tuesday morning I'd talked to my wife. She's like, just talk to him. So Tuesday morning on the putting ground, I was like, Hey buddy, can we talk? He's like, yeah. Like, man, bud, yesterday 
that was not you, man. You seem upset with me, frustrated, short me. Is there something I've done? And he put his head down and he looked up and you could tell his little emotions like, no, man, I'm sorry. He's like, my son walked for the first time yesterday and I wasn't there to see it. And I just feel like, what am I doing here? Why am I at a golf tournament? I don't care. It's the U S open. Why am I at a golf tournament when I'm missing things like that at home? I know this is what I've been called to do. I know this is my platform and but, man, it is brutal missing something like that. I just want to be home. And so we talked about it, um, you know, and we, with our faith being the same, we prayed about it. And we had a, a, a decent work day Tuesday, still really struggling. Well, Wednesday afternoon, we were the last people on the range on Wednesday on the far right-hand side. And uh, we found a little bit of something in his golf swing. We, he was moving a little too far off the ball. And so we just kind of tightened up his right knee a little bit. So we got a little bit of flexion in his right knee and had him stay a little more centered. Um, played decent the first two days. I think we were in 27th, 28th place. Decent, not great. Uh, shot 68 on Saturday. Uh, was the low score of the day and could have been a lot lower. He played beautiful golf and we were in seventh place going the last day and he got interviewed on the way to the range. And as we get to the range, I looked at him and said, Hey buddy, you know, what's crazy. I said, we're in seventh place. And that's the first interview you've given this week. He goes, I know <laughs> that's the first interview I've given. And then, you know, five hours later, we've won the U S open. And it just, it almost didn't feel real. It, uh, a completely different experience. You didn't really, I had never really fully entertained the fact that we were going to win that golf tournament. The two guys leading the tournament to start that day, obviously Jim Furyk and Graham McDowell, two of the hardest competitors in the world. Uh, Tiger obviously was in front of us uh, playing great golf. Ernie Els, uh, Jason Duffin, these other guys. And you're, I don't know, I just really wasn't thinking that terms. We're two over through five for the day. Um, and just, you know, trying to get one foot in front of the other. And then all of a sudden, uh, we hit a six iron into the sixth hole, got a little bit of a good kick off the right fringe to about 10 feet, made it for birdie and birdie the next two. And all of a sudden I'm like, well, here we go. And, uh, you know, what, what a great experience and, um, definitely a memory I'll never forget. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so you go through the first sort of three, you win again in 2013. So you've got 2011, two wins, a major win in 2012, a win again in 2013. And then, uh, there's a five-year slump, and there, you know, it's hard to call it a slump because it wasn't all. That's what it was. It wasn't a whole time, though, was it? But yeah, but yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of that was to do with the putting change. And I've, I've heard interviews with yourself where you, you've become frustrated at times with Webb being very stubborn in terms of equipment changes, <laughs> and he, he'd always used his belly putter since college, and yes. he really wanted to to get things changed earlier, even with his irons and wedges and things like that. So, how difficult was it? How many conversations between yeah. yourselves? And how hard was it to kind of talk about? Yeah. So the the USGA announced the ban and they announced the ban was going to take place in the fall of 2014 and it was going to take place 2016. So um, we didn't have a strong putting year in 2014, didn't putt well at the tour championship. We go to the Ryder Cup in Scotland um, and don't putt well at the Ryder Cup. And we, we come back and, we're just talking about it, talking about you know what we're going to do. I was like, Weber, just listen to me real quick. Why not switch now? And he's like, why? I was like, bud, we can get out of this a year early. We're going to go play Dunlop Phoenix in Japan's our next event. There's not going to be hardly any media there. They're fast, small greens. We can put the short putter in. He had been practicing with it at home. Um, I was like, we're not putting well. Let's go. Let's do this. You Now, you know, there's a backstory there, which I didn't know about, and he hadn't shared yet, but – so we went to the short putter. Um, oh, we're going to go to the short putter. He calls me the day before we're going to leave for Japan. He's like, Paul, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to putt with a belly putter. I just feel a little more comfortable with it right now. The short putter needs more work. We'll start in Sony with it. I'm like, buddy, why well, start a new year? And he's like, I, this is the decision I've made. I was like, okay. So we hung up the phone. And he called me back an hour later. He goes, well, I'm not going to use the belly putter now. <laughs> uh, and I laugh. I was like, why? He's like, well, I got off the phone with you, and I know you well enough to know that you didn't like my decision, but that you would back me. And I just started running through why I was so afraid. And the answer is it had become like Linus's blanket to him. You know, yeah. for those of you that have watched Charlie's Brown, Charlie Brown, you know, Linus had to have his blanket with it. And that's what the belly putter had become. Um, and at the time, I didn't realize but that Webb battled with anxiety putting. Uh, I didn't know that. Nobody knew that. He had never shared that with anybody. He went to the belly putter his freshman year of college when he was 18. And at this point, he was 29. So 11, over 11 years, he had putted with this thing. And 
he decided I'm going to break it over my knee so I can't use it. And he broke it over his <laughs> knee, which I'm proud of Weber for doing. Come <laughs> yeah. on, look at him. I'm that a boy. Um, but uh, broke it over his knee and brought the short putter. And I was so excited. Uh, we putted poorly at Phoenix. Um, but then we hired Pat Goss, uh, who is Luke Donald's short game and putting instructor. And so he had helped us a little bit. And we went to Sony with the short putter. And now, obviously, media knows. He's got a ton of interviews. And we go out the first day and shoot – 34 28 um made everything shot 62 uh putted incredible we shoot 67 the next day uh tied for the lead and then putted poorly on the weekend and you know, i didn't really think a whole lot about it at the time i think we finished 10th or somewhere around in there but then the next week it was a little worse the next week was a little worse and um by the end of 2015 we had fallen from a top 30 putter to i think 177th at the end of that year and it was over it was over a shot around and it was 1.1 shots per round that we had given up from the year before with the putter. And we all know on this tour, that's four and a half shots a week. That is everything. And it was our first year missing the tour championship. It was our first year missing the, uh, the cup teams, which that year would have been president's cup. Um, so in South Korea, I think so that was our first year missing 2016 comes and the same thing happens again. Um, we finished 175th, I think, in putting. Now we've missed uh, the tour championship again, another team event. And the start of 17 is the same way. Uh, we're 192nd in putting going into TPC in 2017. And now we're with the Kuchar style, but it's not helping at all. Uh, we're still struggling. We had missed the cut the week before with nine three putts and 36 holes. And we get TPC, and it's Wednesday afternoon, and we're struggling. And Tim Clark's on the side of the green, and they have the same agent. And he said to me and his agent, Thomas, he goes, hey, do you, do you mind if I go say something to Weber? I was like, no, you can say whatever you want. And he goes over and just shared that right-hand claw grip with him. Yeah. And Tom, overnight, um, you know, and the very next day, he put it into play, which that's anti-Web. Web doesn't do that. Web has to put it through the whole ringer first. And it took some bravery for him just to put it in play the next day, but he had reached the bottom of the barrel. And he put it into play, and he moved up from 192 to 88 by the end of the year, and there was only about three months. Um, and then I think fifth in 2018, 11th last year in putting. And, you know, his game has been back. He's obviously made the, the last three teams again, and he's back to uh, being in the top ten in the world again. Um, I think putting is his strength now. He's putting better now than he ever did before. And uh, it's a situation where I didn't think I'd ever see it again. And that win in 2018 the players – for me was uh wow is all i'm gonna say about that <laughs> yeah absolutely and do, do, was there any times where obviously i think you explained about it before where you didn't actually believe that you could come back to the standard that it is now and um i imagine there was probably some difficult conversations between the pair of you at times and yeah um you know then that's the sort of thing that people don't see people just see it as a, a loss in form and, and it's just down to the putter but then that, there's other things that build into that oh man yes you know Tom, there's no way i can describe enough like i know it's just sport but it's not just sport it is our life it's our livelihood it's you know the platform that we've been given it's the talent we've been given to make a difference in this world and man to watch something be taken from you that we still believe i still believe unfairly taken from us it really only affected the belly putter guys which is only three guys and yeah. keegan bradley still hasn't gotten past it yet i hope he does one day um but um, you know, it, it was taken from us and it cost us two and a half years. And man, that second year, um, I should have been fired. There was an instance at Beth page black where we got into an argument on the sixth hole there. It's a dog leg left. It's a fantastic hole. You can get a four iron off the tee and an eight iron in the green, or you can hit drive or lob wedge. And anyway, we hit it through the fairway in the first cut and he hit it about 30 feet. He was mad about our play off the tee. And I was frustrated. We had had eight three putts at the time through 32 holes, and we were still on the cut, which is just incredible how good of ball striking he had yeah, at exactly, the time yeah. that we could still have a chance. And I lost it on the green. I did. I, I just lost it. He, I go, yeah, let's blame – you know, I'm not going to share the whole story, but, yeah, let's blame the putting – or let's blame the play off the tee when we've had eight three putts to make the cut. <laughs> you know, afterwards I thought I was going to get fired, and I deserve to be fired um, for the things I said. But I worked for somebody who's just different than everybody else, and he knows where my heart was. He's a great – he gives you the benefit of the doubt. And we sat in the car, and we talked for almost two hours. We cried. Um, we really did. We shed some tears, and we talked. And we just got down to the fact that I didn't think he was searching enough, that – he just hoped that 
some pixie dust was going to be dropped from a ferry and that things were going to change overnight. I just told him, like, but it's not how it changed. I've had the swing yips for whatever, 16 years, and it took a lot of hard work and time for me to get past them. And you're not doing the things you need to do to get by the yips to get past them. You're not. You're not talking to the right people. You know, Bernhard Langer, you need to pick up the phone and have a five-hour conversation with Langer and Lehman who went through it. You know, Langer went through it four times, which I didn't know. Um, and he shared them all with Weber later on. I said, you've not tried any other methods of putting. Like, you need to try – 15 different methods, and that's what the one thing Langer said is you need to try everything. Everything should be on the table. Um, you talk to a sports psychologist and ask about that. We need to go to a couple of different putting coaches and see if that'll work. Like, And sure enough, Weber within two weeks had done them all, and it started this move back And because only because he was able to see that my heart – I wanted to go after this and not just hope but yet go work it, and he was able to see that and get past it. And then – I mean, Tom, the, the players in 2018, we were playing better and better. He, he was back in the top 50 in the world again, and he was starting to knock on the door more and more. And I had told everybody going into the players that I thought we were going to win the golf tournament, which people know I never say that. Yeah. I was like, but this tournament is made for us. It's made for us to win. It's just a, a perfect setup. It's firm. It's fast. It's you got to move the ball left to right, right to left. You have to hit it straight. And um, to go out and do what he did uh, to – you know, to win by only only end up winning by four, but he was blowing the field away by more than that. He doubled the last hole, but you know, to blow the field away to win wire to wire um, in my back door. My grandfather taught me how to play the game, where all of my family still lives, and uh, to come back one year after Tim Clark had given him that lesson. So the one year anniversary comes back and destroys the best field in golf, and after not winning for four and a half years, it was just it was an emotional week and. You know, people don't understand when I say that the players win is more important, more vital, more everything for me than the U.S. Open win. They don't seem to understand it because I know on paper the U.S. Open's a bigger win. But for for me, and I know Webb has said this as well, it, it was a much bigger accomplishment and I much prefer the week of 2018, the players, versus the win at the U.S. Open in 12 where no one even knew we were in the field basically until we had won the golf tournament where – at the players, we were the man all week. He was the man all week and was able to get it done under some pretty intense situations on an intense golf course. Uh, and, and again, a year removed from that putting ban and, and the darkest times we had been through. Yeah, I think it's really great to hear you say that because I think from the outside looking in now, we can understand how much that would have meant because as, as golf fans, we understand where he's coming from to get back to that players, but not quite in the detail that you've just shared there. And I think the biggest credit to him and yourself there is that He's not now sort of taking that win at the players and, okay, I'm back now and, and laxed off. He's gone from strength to strength again to the point where I think he's actually even a better player than he was even through the, the best years of his time. So now he's, like you say, the putting is a strength rather than he's just got back to normal. He's actually better at putting than he ever was before. Um, and and to me, and I'll ask you this, I, I think that he has everything about him. Forget the fact that he's, he's not as long off the tee as others. He seems to be able to compete wherever he goes and he looks to me as if he could go and be world number one like VJ was um, just through consistency. Um, you know, Justin Rose did it through a lot of high finishes and, and I think Webb could do the same. I don't know what your feelings are on that. Yeah, I think I think for us to get to number one in the world, um, yeah, it would take some of the most incredible golf over a two-year span. Like you said, it would have to be a, a lot of true consistency um, along – only because a lot of the golf courses we play, unfortunately, are built towards one style of golfer. Um, now, you live right next door to a golf course that is not built towards one style of golfer at all, and we can't wait for 2021. I have a hate relationship with St. George's. Uh, I worked for Jerry Kelly there when we made 13 on the first hole to break the all-time record. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, so that was at St. George's. And, you know, so I know the golf course can be very penal, a little unfair at times, but those are the kind of golf courses we need to play when you don't hit it, you know, the distances that these other guys hit it. We just need to play courses where driving the ball straight is huge. Distance control is huge. Pitching of the golf ball is huge. Um, and so I, I do think Weber can get to number one, but I think it's going to look a lot differently than it would a McElroy, a DJ, a Kepka, these guys that 
can get so overpowering and run through stretches of four months where they might win, you know, four golf tournaments where it'll look a little bit more long scale, kind of like the way Luke Donald did it back in 2011, which is just incredible consistency, fantastic chipping and putting, great mental work. And I do think Webb has that inning, but I think it'll take a little longer um, to accomplish than it would maybe some of these uh, these younger, stronger players. Yeah, we, we talk about consistency here, and I think you know since that player's win uh, and, and just before it as well, he'd you know he's had his best two finishes at Augusta, uh, another top ten in the US Open, all top twenty finishes in the majors in 2018. It, it certainly seems to be that he's now. Yes. Sort of building his game and peaking for the right weeks again now and it, yeah. and it certainly seems to be I mean he must be going into major weeks now really confident of, of securing another one he is definitely and, and here's the the great thing about that we we sat back in 2017 um, once he had started putting better and all that and looked at you know why haven't we played better in majors and for me the one area I thought was short game which will surprise me when it comes to Webb but Webb's always been Webb's a great bumper of the ball Webb um, you know, can spin the ball or flop the ball, but Webb's struggle was hitting those higher, softer spinners. And I would say there's probably only a couple dozen guys on tour that are really good at that. Certain guys can hit the kind of those fast spinning checkers. Other guys, maybe, you know, you can hit flop shots. We can all do those things, but the ability to hit kind of the softer spinnier shots are what Augusta asks out of you. You have to be able to hit that shot. And you look at the players that have had success there, they all have that ability. You look at Bernhard Langer still making the cut every year at 63 years old, and you know what does he do well? He's probably the best pitcher of the ball in the game. Yeah. Um, you look at Larry Mize making the cut last year, I think it's 60-something years old. Again, a fantastic pitcher of the ball. And so we hired Pat Goss in 2016, obviously Luke Donald's short game coach, and uh, Luke's short game is you know second to none if, if you haven't seen it, but um, he has completely redone web short game, like completely. Um, it is, there's nothing the same that it was from, you know, three years ago. It, the ball position is different. The swing path is different. The face control is different. The exit point is different. The release is different. And it took a little bit of time, but at the beginning of 2018, he started to get a better feel for it and it's getting better and better and better and better. And now, um, I guess all the other day we're the only uh, I think we were only two people that finished top 20 in every major in 18, and there's only we're the only ones that have finished top 30. I know it's a weird stat, but still we love it yeah, in every stat, major yeah. the last two years. Yeah, it's the we're the only player um, that's done it in the last two years, which means there is that consistency there. And uh, another cool stat: no double bogeys in the last eight majors, which is that's, that's a weird goal. Yeah. That is no, a goal we have though. <laughs> in, in a U.S. Open, you know, there's two U.S. Opens in there. That, you know, there's tough yeah. courses in there. Augusta as well. That's an incredible Augusta. stat. And you know, obviously the the Open Championship courses. You know, there's yeah. trouble all over the place. And so, what we've tried to do in these major championships at these harder golf courses, if we get out of position. What's the first way we get it back in position into our wheelhouse? We'll never remember a bogey at the end of the week, but we'll always remember a middle mistake the other way. And uh, that's something that he's done a great job of. And, yes, he's very confident. Um, you know, the Augusta in November is going to be awfully cold. It's going to be about 11 degrees colder than it is in April. So that doesn't necessarily help Weber because of the, the distance of the golf ball. <laughs> However, I do think the course is going to play tougher tee to green for everyone, which is going to make a bigger impact on short game. So that kind of could feed right back into his favor. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you say that. It was one of the things I was going to ask is that, yes, the distance is, is affected and maybe these, these longer guys can take advantage, but there is going to be different different factors there that can affect that as well. So yeah, it's really interesting that you say that, and, and we're all hoping that, that Webb can go on and get another major win because his game is certainly trending in that direction you know it's like you say the bogey avoidance and things like that is so critical to his game. and a lot of people it's funny you pointed out that uh you can't play defensive goal and i think sometimes webb gets attributed to that that he's he's very solid doesn't make a mistake but it's not defensive it's just thinking it through and that's and being aggressive when at the right moment it's really just taking a strong look at the percentages like okay if we do this what are our percentages of being successful versus this and that's what we try to do now obviously coming late on a sunday there are times when you're going to make maybe a a uh, take on something that might not be the percentage play to give yourself an opportunity to win but we wouldn't start doing that until 
you know, maybe halfway through, maybe when you're making the turn at a golf tournament, knowing, okay, we need to shoot six under. How can we do that? Okay, let's take two chances here and see, give ourselves an opportunity to shoot that number and then go forward. But yeah, uh, unless it was that kind of situation, we would probably still stick to our game plan. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, just before I let you go, I know we've been, been chatting for a while now. I just wanted to, this is completely off the golf course now. And just, I think it's an important thing to mention is, is your foundation and the work oh, that you do. Yes. Um, because I think that, you know, it's very easy to look at you guys as golfers and golf caddies and nothing else, but you, you do some incredible work off the golf course as well. Yeah, Tom, thank you for bringing that up. Um, so our foundation, the Tesori Family Foundation, if anybody wants, they can check it out, tesorifamilyfoundation.org. But it has become such a dear uh, fan of me and my wife. Uh, we just we love being able to give back, and the foundation has really taken off. Um, my son, Isaiah, who has Down syndrome, was born in 2014, and that brought a lot of attention to the foundation and also kind of gave us a little bit of a – a different focus and a different avenue that we wanted to approach. And so we do these all-star kids clinics throughout uh, the U.S. Um, we'll have 20 this year um, around the PGA Tour schedule where we do 25 kids with special needs. They get one-on-one -on -one instruction from PGA Tour players, coaches, and caddies. Um, and we just introduce them to the game, let them have some fun. They go through a few different stations. We have a nice little dance contest with some good prizes at the end. Um, and it's just a way for us to give back through golf, which has given me so much. And also for us, the Christmas tree angel program where we feed, or we don't feed. That's a different program. Sorry. We, uh, we buy presents for a hundred homeless families for the kids and adults. We buy them, we wrap them, and we deliver them to their home. And that's something that's a lot of fun. We just all get together. We probably get 100 volunteers together. We drink coffee. We eat donuts. We shop. We wrap. We laugh. We sing. Um, and then we get the presents delivered, and, and that's been great. And just a, a lot of different programs that we've been fortunate in giving back $1.5 million over the last, uh, what, seven years now. Yeah, and it's – it's you know, we, we don't have that kind of financial ability to do that, but it's just through – uh, all the volunteers, uh, you know, my friends and family here in the area that have gotten together. We do one fundraising golf tournament each year in December. Um, and then just people throughout the golf world, uh, to be honest with you, that have reached out just out of kindness uh, to just to help us, to pray for us, to encourage us, support us, uh, and to volunteer with us. And so very, very fortunate to do our little part and to give back to this game that has been just incredibly good to us. Yeah, absolutely. And just just to, to reiterate the point there is is TesoriFamilyFoundation.org. Uh, check it out just to to see what the, the guys are doing over there and, and really just see what impact you can make off the golf course by using the platform. I know yourself and, and Webb always talk about that is is using it in the right way and, and Ted and Bubba as well who I've spoken to are both big advocates of that and it's really just yes. a case of really understanding there's so much more going on in life and especially in, I think what's going on in the world right now is probably a good way of, of opening our eyes to that sort of thing. Um, and I just wanted to, to mention that before we went, because I think it's a really important thing to talk about. Thank, thank you so much, Tom. And one more thing too, that we've been able to do during this pandemic is, you know, we've been able to donate a lot of money and goods just to the food shelters. And I know I'm sure you guys are struggling like that as well. So if any of the listeners are there, just, it's small things, um, you know, $100 worth of food for these food shelters, these food banks um, could really help. And there are some people going through some awful times right now. And I have been fortunate enough that, you know, we are doing well, we are healthy and we are making it by, but I know how hard it is out there. So everybody try to pitch in a little bit. Um, every little bit helps and, uh, and we can get past this hopefully soon. Absolutely. Paul, thank you very much for your time today. Um, best of luck when you get back to playing and, uh, on the golf course, which is what you guys do best. Um, but certainly we just want to stay healthy and, and get out of this as best we can. I love that. And Tom, make sure that uh, you come over and I can shake your hand next year at the British Open uh, right by your house at St. George. Absolutely. Look forward to doing that. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Bye-bye.